You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 28, The Liberation of Lombardy. Thanks for joining me. We left off last time in mid-May of 1796. Napoleon and the Army of Italy were at Lodi, just east of the city of Milan, where they had won a dramatic victory over the Austrians, capping off another short, brilliant campaign that had seen the Habsburgs evicted from the heart of Lombardy. Legends were already being built around the Battle of Lodi, but in reality it was little more than a spiteful parting shot at a beaten enemy that had slipped Napoleon's grasp. By the skin of his teeth, Austrian general Johann Beaulieu had saved his army from destruction. Lodi was a messy, unnecessary battle. It was more important to Napoleon as a political milestone than a military one. The battle gave him the perfect headline-grabbing story to burnish his public profile. However, the very night after his victory, Bonaparte received a dispatch from Paris that must have instantly taken the wind out of his sails. It contained new orders from the Directory. Rather than continuing to push east, up the Po Valley against the Austrians, Bonaparte was ordered to divide the Army of Italy, sending around half to reinforce the small Army of the Alps under General François Kellermann. Then Napoleon and Kellermann were to take their armies south, where they would plunder and extort from the smaller states of central Italy, finally striking at the biggest piggy bank on the peninsula, Rome, and the wealth of the Vatican. The financial impetus for the campaign had always been more important to the Directory than any strategic motivations, and now they were effectively ordering Bonaparte to abandon his military objectives entirely, and focus solely on sending more loot back to Paris. Effectively, this would end the First Italian Campaign. Napoleon's plan had worked almost flawlessly, and this is how the directors rewarded his success? He believed as fervently as ever that Italy was the weak underbelly of the Habsburg Empire. He and his army had come too far and achieved too much to simply give up on this strategy without a fight. And so, Bonaparte did something good subordinates are not supposed to do. He argued with his superiors. In a lengthy letter back to Paris, Napoleon explained the folly of this new course of action, the inherent advantages of a unitary command structure over a force divided between two generals, the danger of turning France's attention away from Beaulieu's army, which, although beaten, was still intact, and, above all, the strategic successes he could achieve if he was only allowed to keep up the momentum. He promised to dispatch expeditions south to reap all they could from central Italy, but begged Paris to keep the army intact and allow him to continue the push east. 
Napoleon didn't lose his temper. His arguments are actually quite good, and the tone of the letter is measured and rational. But he did threaten to resign rather than preside over the dismemberment of his army. The directors received this message simultaneously with the news of the victory at Lodi. Bonaparte had just made himself a hero, and he was delivering more cash than any of them had dared hope. How could they call his bluff now? How would the public react if they fired an increasingly beloved general in the wake of a great victory? And so, a few days later, Napoleon received this response, quote, Immortal glory to the conqueror of Lodi. The directory has carefully considered and decided in favor of the affirmative. End quote. Not only did they cave, they completely reversed course and stripped 9,000 men from Kellermann's army to reinforce Napoleon. Bonaparte learned a simple equation from the affair. Victory brought money and fame, and money and fame brought independence from the government. With Paris placated and the Austrians temporarily incapacitated, Napoleon turned his attention at last to Milan, the capital of Lombardy and the greatest prize in northern Italy. The city was in limbo as it awaited Bonaparte's arrival. The few remaining Austrians pulled back to the old citadel at the center of town to prepare a last-ditch defense. This was a small force, only around 2,000 men, many of whom had stayed behind because they were too sick or exhausted to make the march out of Lombardy. They had little in the way of firepower or supplies, and no real hope of actually holding out against the army of Italy, but were not willing to surrender without at least making a gesture at resistance. With Austrian soldiers off the streets, Milan experienced something approaching de facto independence for the first time since the 16th century. But no one was celebrating. Imagine the mood in your town if the police suddenly disappeared completely and every representative and employee of the national government pulled up stakes and fled. The Habsburgs were far from universally popular in northern Italy, but Austrian dominance was the only system anyone in the city had ever known. For most Milanese, this was a time of uncertainty, anxiety, and fear. And Milan was not unique. All over northern Italy, people were grappling with the social and political consequences of Napoleon's victories. Italy had been a battleground for great powers many times in the past. But Bonaparte and the Army of Italy were not just another in that long succession of foreign conquerors. The French brought new ideas and disrupted the social and political order. To those Italians who were attached to that order, this made the Army of Italy a scourge, to be resisted bitterly by any means necessary. To others, the French conquest was an opportunity the long-awaited destruction of a rotten system and the dawning of a hopeful new age. To still others, probably the majority of the population, there were no good guys or bad guys here. It was simply a time of trials to be endured as best one could. In short, the revolution had come to Italy, and Italian society was already splitting along the same fault lines that had divided France since 1792. 
Milan had a long history as a hotbed of progressive thought and radical politics. In the closing decades of the 18th century, the Milanese left coalesced into a loose faction, commonly known as the Patriots, sometimes also referred to as the Jacobins, after their ideological cousins in France. There were pockets of radicalism in many of the larger towns of Lombardy as well, but, as is typical with these types of movements, Patriots' activity was closely associated with urbanism. Milan was the hub of left-wing politics in the Po Valley. The Milanese authorities had always been energetic in suppressing and harassing the Patriots, and were strongly supported in these efforts by their Habsburg masters, particularly once the war broke out and radicalism came to be associated with a hostile foreign power. And so, the Lombard left mostly operated behind closed doors. Many patriots chose exile over life in the shadows. Naturally, many of these exiles ended up in France, and several had joined up with Bonaparte and the Army of Italy. Napoleon sent them to Milan ahead of the army to prepare the ground for his arrival. The Milanese patriots were already emboldened by the retreat of the Austrians. Now they were further reinforced by these returning agitators who brought radical literature and practical revolutionary experience from France. The most prominent of these former exiles was a young journalist named Carlo Salvador, whose energy and aggressiveness quickly carried him to de facto leadership over the Milanese patriots. He founded a political society modeled after the French Jacobin Club, which he named the Society of the Friends of Liberty and Equality, but quickly came to be known as the People's Club, for short. Within days, Milan started to look like Paris at the height of the revolution. There were mass meetings with fiery radical speeches. Working-class Milanese began openly wearing the red liberty cap, just like the Parisian sans-culotte. According to Salvador, the Patriots distributed 50,000 tricolor cockades to their supporters, enough for almost one in four Milanese. These cockades were not in the French tricolor of blue, white, and red. Just like the broader revolutionary project, the cockades were an Italian adaptation of the French original. The Patriots picked green, white, and red as their colors, a choice that would prove enduring. The People's Club held bonfire festivals and erected a liberty pole in the square outside the royal palace. They even formed their own Milanese National Guard, a patriotic volunteer militia, just like the ones in France. On May 14th, soldiers from André Massena's division entered the city to a mixed reception. The patriots turned out in force to greet them as liberators, but many more ambivalent Milanese were there as well. They were aware this was an historic day in the life of the city. The Austrians had been a great, unassailable power in Lombardy for nearly three centuries. People were understandably curious to get a look at the men who had turfed them out. What they saw surprised them. As one bystander put it, quote, The clothes of the officers and men are torn and threadbare. They have neither tents nor baggage. They have no proper uniform. Some wear trousers. Others breeches, these wear boots, those shoes. 
You see some with waistcoats, or wearing the first clothes they have got a hold of. It is amazing that these men, dying of hunger, generally small, weak, worn out by fatigue and privation, without clothes or shoes, men that one would take for the dregs of a wretched population, should have conquered the Austrian army, which has everything in abundance, food, clothes, guns, supplies of all sorts, and is composed of veterans, of great height, robust, and inured to war. End quote. Now, the man who wrote that was a Catholic priest, so we can pretty safely assume he was predisposed to a low opinion of the French and a high opinion of the Austrians. To look at it from another perspective, you might say that the ragged French were a hardy bunch, willing to nearly kill themselves with effort for the cause, while the Austrians were parade ground soldiers, who looked smart but were unprepared for the realities of modern warfare. Napoleon himself finally entered the city the next day, May 15, 1796. Remember, the Piedmontese had given in before the army of Italy reached Turin, so this would be his first great triumphal entrance into an enemy capital. He planned to do it in style. Like most army commanders of the period, Napoleon traveled by coach. Maybe not as romantic as riding on horseback, but a general's carriage functioned as a kind of mobile office. It's hard to devote your full attention to maps and reports from the saddle. But May 15th was a day for theatrics. Napoleon ditched the carriage outside the city and mounted a white horse for his grand entrance. He arrived in Milan through the Porta Romana, an ornate stone gate that resembles a triumphal arch. He then led a procession to the royal palace. Bonaparte had probably envisioned throngs of cheering Milanese patriots, but turnout was pretty poor compared to the crowds that had shown up to watch Messina's division the day before. Apparently, Milan's curiosity about the French had been satisfied. This clearly irked Napoleon because he would fudge the details in later retellings of the story. And of course, he saw to it that reports in the press all described a rapturous crowd. That evening, the city fathers of Milan hosted a reception at the royal palace for the leadership of the Army of Italy. The court musicians entertained the guests with refined arrangements of revolutionary anthems. I doubt the strangeness or irony were lost on anyone. The next day, a French soldier hung a sign on the gates of the palace. It read, House for Rent, Inquire to Commissar Salicetti. Milan had been turned upside down. A few days later, Bonaparte issued a proclamation assuring the people of Milan of his good intentions. Quote, the French Republic, which has sworn hatred to tyrants, has also sworn brotherhood towards all peoples. The despot who so long enslaved Lombardy has caused great mischief to France. But the French people know that the cause of kings is not the cause of their people. If the French are conquerors, they wish to consider the people of Lombardy as brothers. Respect for property, for persons, for religion, these are the sentiments which animate the French government and the victorious army of Italy. The independence of Lombardy depends on the success of the French. 
in order to ensure the advance of the troops, provisions, which cannot be drawn from France, are necessary. They ought to be found in Lombardy. The right of war might seize them. Friendship should offer them. A contribution of two million francs is laid on Austrian Lombardy. The army needs this sum, which is a very slight imposition for so fertile a country, when all the advantages which will result from a French occupation are considered. End quote. I think Napoleon really did believe in that mission of liberation, that the Milanese would be better off under the French than under the Austrians. He may have even been right in the long run. But you can probably guess which part of that proclamation really stuck with people. All that talk about brotherhood was nice, but abstract. Two million francs was something concrete you could wrap your head around, and few in Lombardy agreed that it was a small imposition. And that two million would be on top of the wealth the French had already extracted from the region in the form of loot, foraging, and requisitions of supplies. Only a few days later, Napoleon made further demands. Quote, the various Milanese provinces will furnish for the wants of the army. First, 2,000 draft horses. Second, cloth enough for 15,000 coats, 50,000 vests, and 50,000 breeches. Third, 100,000 shirts. Fourth, 20,000 hats, all to be delivered within one week. End quote. Just as it is today, Milan was a center of clothing and textile manufacturing, and so Napoleon was imposing on them to practically reclothe the entire army. Bonaparte was still a firm believer in that evangelical mission of the revolution. He truly felt that he and his army had liberated Milan. From his perspective, a bit of cash and cloth was a small price to pay for freedom and progress. And of course, the army really did need those payments. As we've seen, Paris could not even begin to meet its needs. Very few Italians shared Napoleon's views. Many were coming to see the French as little more than a plague of ravenous locusts. However, Napoleon remained optimistic that he and his army were being received well by the population. He wrote back to the directory that Milan was a politically advanced city and would soon be ready for self-government as a republic. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Once again, Napoleon required his payments in hard cash, gold or silver, no paper money or letters of credit. And once again, the first thing he did when the Milanese paid up was take care of his men. He used the wealth taken from Milan to pay the army in full, including back pay 
and not just what they were owed since the beginning of the campaign, or since Bonaparte took command, but every franc they had been promised by the government since 1793. With their knapsacks already swollen with loot from a month of conquest, many officers literally had more cash than they could carry. One soldier of the Army of Italy later remembered, quote, The officers did not know what to do with all the money they had been given. As they did not have coats, canteens, or any other form of transport, they bought jewelry. The watchmakers and jewelers saw their shops emptied in 24 hours, and everyone strutted around with two watches decorated with chains and ornaments that fell halfway down their thighs, just as the fashion was in Paris at the time. End quote. These gaudy watches and jewelry must have looked pretty ridiculous in combination with the mismatched threadbare uniforms. But as that passage alludes to, the spending spree served a practical purpose. A jewel-encrusted pocket watch worth three years' pay is a lot more portable than three years' pay in gold and silver coin. The army was ecstatic over this windfall. The officers and men were drawn even closer to Bonaparte. Of course, this was the exact type of phenomenon the civilian government back in Paris had been trying to avoid when they banned this type of direct transfer of cash between generals and their armies. But Napoleon and his men had achieved unbelievable things in the preceding weeks, and all with the bare minimum of support from faraway Paris. Bonaparte felt entitled to reward his men for their labors. And who was going to stop him? His official oversight came from Salicetti, his own patron and ally. However, this latest stunt was a bridge too far for Salicetti. He had been willing to look the other way on some light looting and dodgy requisitioning practices. He had even tolerated smaller payments to the troops. In fact, according to some sources, it was his idea to pay the men a dividend after the conquest of Piedmont. But Napoleon had finally pushed him beyond his limit. Salicetti had been growing wary of Bonaparte's burgeoning power and ambition for some time. He took this payment from the spoils of Milan as confirmation of all of his worst suspicions. The two men had a falling out. We don't have any accounts of this dispute, but I'd imagine it was pretty explosive. While their relationship remained outwardly as friendly as ever, there were unresolved antagonisms that had been simmering below the surface for years. Napoleon had always suspected Salicetti was behind his imprisonment after the coup of Thermidor, but had never actually confronted him. Meanwhile, Salicetti had privately come to think of Napoleon more as a rival than a friend. According to some sources, they had even briefly pursued the same woman before Napoleon's marriage to Josephine. However their fight played out, it resolved nothing, because Salicetti dashed off a letter to Paris, ratting out his own protege and disavowing his actions. Quote, the commander-in-chief took this resolution himself. He did not inform me, and I did not know about it, until the entire army had already been informed. End quote. But a strange thing happened in the wake of Salicetti's letter. Nothing. Once again, the government felt it wasn't worth the political cost to rein Bonaparte in. 
It had been barely two months since Napoleon had left Paris, and he had now defied the government twice and won. As long as he kept winning battles, sending cash back to Paris, and capturing the French public imagination, the army of Italy belonged to General Bonaparte, not to the Republic. Victory had taken Napoleon to dizzying heights, but in some respects, all of his success had put the army of Italy in a precarious position. Their lines of supply and reinforcement now stretched over 300 kilometers of foreign territory. That's just under 200 miles. There were roughly 50,000 Frenchmen total in northern Italy, now responsible for maintaining control over an area about 9,000 square miles, or 14,500 square kilometers, and populated by over a million people. Milan alone might have had as many as 200,000 people. As we discussed earlier in the episode, this was a period of political crisis in Lombardy, and hostility to the French was present and growing. If things took a turn and serious unrest broke out, the army of Italy might be hard-pressed to put a lid on things. And in the weeks after the conquest of Milan, there were signs that something serious might be brewing. The army's economic impositions were unpopular, of course, but the biggest source of this discontent was religion. If the average European in 1796 knew anything about the French revolutionaries, it was that they were in conflict with the Roman Catholic Church. To those who felt the Church had too much power, that wasn't a bad thing, but those views were in the minority. There was strong anti-clerical sentiment among certain quarters in Milan and in a few of the larger towns, but most people in northern Italy were quite content with the Catholic Church, particularly in the countryside. That Catholic majority was anxious as to what the French conquest might mean for the Church, and those fears were stoked by the radical rhetoric coming from the more anti-clerical members of the Patriot faction. These anxieties found expression in the form of rumors that swept through Lombardy during the spring of 1796, rumors of evil spiritual omens. Typically, these were related to some statue or relic housed in a local church. It was whispered that many of these holy objects had become vessels for miraculous expressions of God's displeasure with the French. In one village, it was said that a statue of the Virgin Mary wept as the French marched into town. In another, the statue of the local saint moved from her usual alcove, almost as if she was trying to flee. In Milan, a statue of the city's patron saint, St. Ambrose, supposedly lifted an accusatory pointed finger as the army of Italy marched past. Whatever your personal spiritual beliefs, it's worth noting that none of these incidents has ever been officially recognized as miraculous by the Catholic Church. Assuming these were not, in fact, supernatural events, it's interesting to speculate on how these rumors came into being. They may have been deliberately stirred up by Habsburg agents or conservative priests, as many in the army of Italy believed. But I also think it's possible this all started as some kind of mass hysteria. People were dealing with the arrival of a conquering foreign army, which had defeated the centuries-old ruling order and triggered the sudden rise of a domestic radical movement. 
The church and the revolution really were in conflict. And we can only imagine the type of lurid propaganda and urban legends that average Catholics in Italy would have heard about the religiously tinged civil war in France. However they started, these stories tapped into the anxieties unleashed by the invasion, and the anger at the army of Italy's onerous economic demands. And so, the rumors flew across the countryside, and motivated people to action. All over Lombardy, groups of peasants began filtering into the towns and villages. Maybe they just wanted to see these miracles with their own eyes. Maybe they felt some calling to defend their local parish from the godless French. Maybe they didn't know exactly what they were doing, they just vaguely understood that important things were afoot, and felt they needed to take part. Whatever their motivations, many of them came armed. These bands of armed Catholic peasants, coexisting with the newly empowered patriots and small French garrisons in the towns, created a combustible environment. Chance and human nature created sparks, which escalated many of these confrontations into full-blown violent revolts. French soldiers were targeted, but so were Italian patriots and their supporters. The rebels were galvanized by their anger at the foreign invader, but this violence also had characteristics of a civil war. Northern Italy was on the precipice of anarchy. Despite these bad omens, Napoleon marched the Army of Italy out of Milan on May 23rd, headed east to continue the fight against the Austrians. Energized by Bonaparte's departure, Milanese conservatives rioted, tearing down the liberty pole outside the palace. The crowd scattered when the French garrison arrived on the scene, but clearly the city was far from pacified. In the city of Pavia, the French garrison was caught off guard by a sudden revolt, orchestrated by the local nobility. They fell back to the citadel, but had little food, water, or ammunition, and were outnumbered by perhaps as much as ten to one. After two days, the garrison of Pavia surrendered to the rebels. Similar scenes were repeated in many smaller towns and villages all over northern Italy. When news of these disasters reached Napoleon, he cancelled the offensive and ordered the army back to Milan, returning to the city on May 25th. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— we answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Bonaparte's response to these revolts is barely mentioned by many of his biographers, both sympathetic and critical. The whole affair is often reduced to a single sentence, if it's mentioned at all. I actually had to translate some of these quotations in the next segment myself, 
because as far as I know, they don't appear anywhere in any English-language source. But I think this rebellion is important. This is the first time we're seeing Napoleon having to deal with a serious challenge to his rosy view of the campaign as a war of liberation, to free the people of Italy from Austrian domination and the backwards torpor of feudalism. As you'll soon hear, Bonaparte had no problem putting aside that crusading, progressive rhetoric when he felt he had to. What's really remarkable is that once the time for severity passed, he found it just as easy to return to his lofty ideals and become the magnanimous liberator once again. These two seemingly contradictory sides of Napoleon are a major feature of his character. Anyway, these revolts of late May 1796 threatened all of the achievements of the preceding weeks. If these local revolts coalesced into a full-blown regional rebellion, the army of Italy might be cut off, trapped between the Austrians to the east and some counter-revolutionary peasant army to the west. A similar rebellion in the Vendée had lasted nearly a year, and even in 1796 there were still bands of armed royalists in western France, prosecuting an ugly guerrilla war. There was no provision in Napoleon's plans for defeating rebel armies or for carrying out a protracted counterinsurgency. He had to nip these revolts in the bud immediately before they evolved into something that could derail his whole enterprise, or even destroy the army of Italy entirely. The presence of the army had an immediate calming effect on Milan, or perhaps more accurately, an intimidating effect. Napoleon ordered the Archbishop of the city, the ranking Catholic clergyman in Lombardy, to issue a statement encouraging peaceful obedience to the French. This was technically just a reiteration of the official position of the Church, but many of the leaders of the rebellion were priests, and the Vatican was a well-known opponent of the revolution. This statement from the Archbishop did not bring the rebellion to an immediate end, but it seems to have taken some of the wind out of the rebel sails. With the capital secured, Napoleon assembled a force to march on Pavia, the largest of the rebel-held towns. He planned to make an example that would be heard all over Italy. The next day, fate presented him the perfect opportunity to make that example. As the army headed south towards Pavia, a column of about 1,500 men commanded by General Lon came upon the rebel-held village of Benasco. This was a conservative town, and resistance to the French had been particularly fierce. As Lon's men approached, they found the road into town strewn with mutilated corpses of French soldiers. Clearly, the rebels inside Benasco had been hoping to intimidate the Republicans with this display but it had the opposite effect. Lon's men were infuriated and determined to take revenge. Napoleon had set out on this expedition intending to make a harsh example, and so he obliged. There were seven to eight hundred rebels in the town. They attempted to resist, but didn't stand a chance against a larger force of trained regulars, and were immediately shattered by the first French charge. A few insurgents escaped to the countryside, but Lon's men made any they caught pay for the spectacle they'd seen on the road into town. 
According to some sources, hardly any able-bodied man who'd remained in Benasco was left alive. The surviving civilians were evacuated, and then Benasco was put to the torch. Napoleon wrote of this incident, quote, I immediately set fire to the village. Though necessary, the sight was no less horrible. I was painfully affected. But I foresaw that greater misfortunes still menaced in Pavia. End quote. This is Napoleon's cold, calculating side. It's not that he lacked a conscience, but he always had his eye on the bigger picture, and had little compunction about ordering an act of violence if he believed it served a greater good and could forestall even greater suffering down the road. If the slaughter at Benasco was necessary to save the army and prevent an even greater massacre at Pavia, he believed it was worth it. Most people would feel uncomfortable playing God, making such morally difficult decisions about the lives of thousands of people. But Napoleon never shied away from such responsibilities. It's part of what made him an effective leader, but it can be chilling. Later that day, the French arrived at the gates of Pavia. Here's how Napoleon described what happened next. Quote, the city was packed with people and in a state of defense. I moved the artillery forward and, after a few salvos, summoned the wretches to lay down their arms and avail themselves of French generosity. They replied that as long as Pavia had walls, they would not surrender. We forced our way through the gates. This immense crowd dispersed, took refuge in the cellars and on the roofs throwing tiles in a vain attempt to contest our entrance to the streets. Three times I began to order the town burned, but the order expired on my lips as I saw the captured garrison arrive. They had broken their chains and came to embrace their liberators with shouts of joy. I called roll, and only one was missing. End quote. So that's the story as Napoleon wrote it for public consumption that Pavia was spared the torch because they treated their French prisoners so well. Perhaps that was part of the calculation, but I think the main reason is that he had already made his point with the sack of Benasco. Pavia didn't get off unscathed. What didn't make the official report was that after the city was secured, Napoleon gave his men free reign over Pavia for the rest of the day. Well, almost free reign. Even anti-French writers note that there were no incidents of rape or murder. Apparently, the troops themselves self-policed and intervened whenever a comrade seemed to be on the verge of crossing the line. Apparently, Napoleon's stern discipline and sermons against indiscriminate pillage had made an impact. Still, we're talking about hours of looting, intimidation, and vandalism. It was not a pleasant day to be a resident of Pavia. With Pavia in French hands, and the example of Benasco, Napoleon felt his point was made, and issued a stern proclamation to the people of northern Italy. Quote, a scattered mob, without any real means of resistance, carried out the latest excesses in several municipalities, mocked the Republic, and defied the army which has triumphed over kings. This inconceivable delirium is worthy of pity, these poor people are misled to their ruin. The general-in-chief is faithful to the principles of the French nation, which does not make war on the people, 
and wants to leave the door open to repentance. However, anyone who has not laid down their arms and taken an oath of obedience to the Republic within 24 hours will be treated as rebels. Their villages will be burned. May the terrible example of Benasco open their eyes. Every town or village that persists in revolt will share its fate. End quote. At the end of this 24-hour amnesty, Bonaparte drew up a longer proclamation, laying out the penalties for anyone in northern Italy who still dared defy the French. Quote, Nobles, priests, and agents of Austria mislead the people of these beautiful counties. The French army, as generous as it is strong, will treat peaceful and tranquil inhabitants as brothers. It will be as terrible as fire from heaven for the rebels, and for the villages that protect them. Article 1. The General-in-Chief declares all villages that do not conform to his orders to be in rebellion. The generals will march against the villages with all forces necessary, burn them, and shoot all those who they find in arms. All the priests and all the nobles who remain in rebel municipalities will be detained as hostages and sent to France. Article 2. Every village where the toxin bell is sounded will be immediately burned. Article 3. Any village in which a Frenchman is killed will be fined a third of their annual tax burden, unless they name the killer, arrest him, and deliver him to the army. Article 4. Any man found with a musket or military munitions will be shot immediately. Article 5. Any estate where hidden weapons are found will be condemned to pay a third of its income in the form of a fine. Any house where a musket is found will be burned, unless the owner declares who it belongs to. Article 6. Any nobles or rich men convicted of inciting the people to revolt will be detained as hostages, transferred to France, and half of their revenues will be confiscated. Signed, Bonaparte. End quote. There's no way to sugarcoat it. These were draconian policies. Napoleon was determined to stamp out this nascent rebellion by any means necessary. Ultimately, it kind of halfway worked. There would not be another revolt on this scale ever again during the First Italian Campaign. However, low-level unrest and violence persisted. French supply convoys were frequently attacked, although it's hard to say if this was the work of reactionary guerrillas, non-ideological bandits, or something in between. This episode of counterinsurgency probably sounds pretty barbaric from a modern perspective, but this type of treatment was par for the course in 18th century warfare. Civilian resistance to an invading army was not considered legitimate. Anyone on any side who fought behind the lines, out of uniform, during the Napoleonic Wars could expect to be treated like a bandit, and dealt with severely. What's remarkable about Napoleon's suppression of this nascent northern Italian revolt is not any unusual level of cruelty, but how entirely typical it was. In many ways, the military of Republican France was a new kind of army and the war of the First Coalition was a new type of war. However, despite all the rhetoric about making wars against tyrants and not the people, and the universal brotherhood of mankind, the French took the same approach to rebels and partisans as any other European army of the period. Napoleon was serious about putting his ideals into practice. 
We've seen him do so several times over the course of this show. But he was a general, and his duties to protect his army and complete his mission could lead him to put aside his ideals in favor of cold, hard pragmatism. This is a pattern we'll see again and again as Napoleon ascends to power. It's also a pattern we'll see in the other French conquests of this period. Whatever their intentions towards the peoples of the territories they occupied, the expediencies of war and the natural antipathy stirred by the presence of armed foreign soldiers almost always inspired a backlash, sometimes a violent one. The Jacobins bragged that French arms would bring the world peace and liberty, but as many Europeans saw it, they only brought financial hardship, chaos, and death. How can you square the ideals of a war of liberation with the cold calculus of military strategy and the brutal realities of conquest and occupation? How can you liberate people who don't want to be liberated? There are no easy answers to these questions. I'm not sure modern states are any better at answering them than the French were in the 18th century. But we shouldn't overstate the level of opposition to the Republicans. As we've seen in this episode, there were also diehard supporters of France and the ideals of the Republic all over the continent. The wars of the French Revolution sometimes almost look like a pan-European civil war between radicals and the forces of the old order. The Republicans ultimately lost this struggle, and so history has not been kind to them. They've generally been painted as self-interested collaborators, crackpots, and ideological fanatics who offered themselves up to be puppets of a foreign power. But many of them had motivations that were no less pure than those of their countrymen who resisted. The Republic may not have lived up to all of its ideals, not even close, but French conquest often did deliver tangible benefits. The governments of France's sister republics were much more democratic and egalitarian than the regimes they replaced, and they were often better administered. Remnants of feudalism and serfdom were abolished. Privilege was swept away in favor of meritocracy. Most of Europe got its first taste of constitutionalism, secularism, and democracy under the rough tutelage of the French ideas that would one day be the building blocks of a stronger, happier, more prosperous social order. Without the despised collaborators of the Napoleonic era, those ideas might not have taken root. That's all for now. Next time, we'll see Napoleon turn his attention back to the Austrians. He'll face a new Habsburg strategy and a new opponent. And, as Bonaparte promised the directors, he will send troops south to continue looting Italy. Until then, thanks for listening.